Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is jason livermore who's a co-owner and operator of the blasting room studios with bill stevenson he's worked with acts such as the descendants Rise Against, A Day to Remember, Man Overboard, Alkaline Trio, No Effects, and a laundry list of other groups. I introduce you, Jason Livermore. Jason Livermore, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Thanks. So what's it like running an actual facility in this day and age? And I don't mean this day and age, like the modern day with uh, the advent of home studios. I mean, this day and age in crazy-ass quarantine time. So I imagine that probably gone to a lot more remote work. Yeah. At the beginning of the year, we started a record for a band called Rise Against that we've done a, a bunch of records for. And do you mean in 2020 or 2020? In 2020. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Basically, we were getting close to being finished and the, the singer Tim got kicked out of his hotel. They were like, I'm sorry, sir, you have to leave. We're closing down. And he was like, hey, guys, I think we're done recording. You know, it was it was a crazy thing. Well, kicked out as in quarantine kicked out. Kicked out like they removed everyone from the hotels. He went to two separate hotels at the end of the recording. And that's when the quarantine stuff was, or the, uh, I suppose it was quarantine, just the lockdown, you know, started happening. And uh, he had to move from two different hotels. And finally, there was nothing left in the, in the town. So it was like, I guess we're done. You know, and we were really close to done. But that was kind of a weird thing that's, you know, obviously... I had never experienced before as a into a recording session. Normally bands get kicked out of hotels just for being assholes. Yeah, just for being dicks, but you know, not, not just for living. Not this time. Yeah. I mean, they could have been dicks, but that was like the beginning of the year. And then we were going to mix the record with Andy Wallace, but he decided to self-quarantine himself. So I ended up mixing the album here. So that ate up a couple good months of my time during the quarantine. And it was a little strange because the rules were so unknown, you know? I was like, man, should I drive to the studio? You're not supposed to go anywhere. Maybe I'll tell them I'm getting groceries if I get pulled over. You know, like, it was just kind of crazy. So it was basically just me in the studio by myself for a couple months. And then I had backed up work that I was 
doing mixing and whatnot. And then it was probably around the summer where stuff really started to slow down. People were supposed to come in and they've, you know, pushed it back a year or canceled or whatever. So yeah, the summer was not that rad, <laughs> you know, for the recording. It was probably maybe the middle to the end of the summer where things started to kind of people was starting to come back in to the studio and we started to pick up and we're probably at like maybe 75% now. It's pretty impressive. Compared to normal. Yeah, we have f four studios in the building now and five different engineers. So between all of us, we, you know, get most of the rooms are filled at one point or another. That's a feat to pull off. In normal times, <laughs> yeah. in the modern day, let alone these crazy ass circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah, totally for real. I mean, we got some of those PPE loans, which uh, you know helped us out a little bit, paying the, paying the guys when um, you know there was probably two months where nobody could come in to record. You know, period. But we had a lot of remote work, like you were saying. Like I did a lot of mixing and mastering stuff. You know, I th I, I feel like. It didn't change that much for us in a sense. I mean, at least mm -hmm. personally wise, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to the studio and I'm in a room by myself. <laughs> wow, this is different, you know, <laughs> not. Yeah. That's the thing is I think actually audio people were well suited for this. Oh, yeah. Because uh, we just spend most of our lives alone anyways. So <laughs> so what's what's the difference? Yeah, and there's less traffic on the way to work. <laughs> yeah, I do think that obviously, I mean, it, you just said it, but anyone who had projects booked to record in person took some sort of a hit. But I do think that just about everyone I know who's like, I would consider good, did just fine last year. Uh, they just found other ways to make it work. And right. part of me feels like as much as it sucked... In a way, it is a window into the future. I mean, that's the direction things are going anyways. You no, know, I, I, I totally agree with you because, you know, obviously it sucked and everybody's life was upended and whatnot. And I was in the back of my mind, I'm like, is this really a bad thing? Like, this is kind of cool. Like, it makes nobody care about half the things that they care about anyways. You that know, don't matter. That don't matter at all. It's like, hot, do I have to go back and see Kim Kardashian on the freaking newsfeed? <laughs> you know, like, you know, shit that doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter and we don't have to pay attention to it. So it's kind of cool that this happened in that way to upend people's just bullshit lives, you know? Do you feel like uh, it did that also with clients, as in people caring more about the uh, the bottom line? Like, does this rule, does it not rule, rather than um, caring too much about... Just putting out garbage to put out garbage. In or, a or like interband drama, management drama, like, all, you, you know, all this yeah. stuff that goes along with making records that just the industry side of things, just weird stuff like arbitrary deadlines, arbitrary people to please, like those weird things. You know, I, the, the arbitrary deadlines is like the biggest thing. Cause all of a sudden, you know, record that was supposed to come out, you know, last summer has got pushed back a year. And, and then besides that, even people are just wondering, like, if they do release records, will, will anyone listen to them now? Or, you know, or the, on the converse, it's kind of like, well, if we release a record now, we, we won't be able to tour. So we're wasting a record. You know, those are like some of the things that happen. But like you're saying, like the deadlines, it's kind of like people are just like, they're not worried about 
things that don't matter. They're not worried about a deadline. It's like, okay, so we put it out, you know, a week later. So what of it? So you know? what? So what? Somebody bit, you know, banging your door down. We need that record now. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Obviously, I think some deadlines are legit. Like, say that there's a huge tour they want to time it with, sure, or a huge tour cycle that's already planned out. Some, you know, something sometimes real, these, something real, yeah, uh, something tangible. Uh, okay, then that makes sense. But sometimes these deadlines are exactly arbitrary. And uh, the one that I can think of that kind of illustrates my point the most was that I was working on a record many years ago that needed more work. This was a band that should not have gotten signed, but they got <laughs> signed. It was in the era between 2006 and 14 where they were signing just way too many bands to metal labels right. for abysmal budgets and basically flooding the market with local bands. And uh, this band needed like two or three more weeks worth of work. It was not ready. And uh, label did not give a shit. They wanted it. They wanted it. But guess the date they wanted it? December 20th. It's like, <laughs> like you're not even going to be in the office until January 6th. No one's going to open this a, up. Yeah, we had a major fight about it. And uh, I burned my bridge with the label because I, was, because I stood my ground. It's like, you're not even going to be there. I know you're not. Right. You're leaving December 15th, maybe December 10th. And you're not, nobody's going to look at anything till at least January 6th. So why do you need it now? Yeah, well, most of the people that are in the position where they're like, we need it now, we need it now. They're not going to be there in a year anyways. So you burned yeah. your bridge, but it probably won't matter. There'll be somebody taking his shoes, you know. Like, no, it's it like, didn't matter. Yeah, if, there's, if, if they were smart enough to know that the deadline didn't matter, they might still be there working. You know? All right, so speaking of burning bridges, what's, uh, what's your opinion on that? I, uh, I think it's an interesting topic because uh, people will give that wisdom of uh, don't ever burn a bridge, make friends with everybody. But right. we know that that's impossible. Like you can't actually maintain a career and be friends with everybody. Sure. So what's your take on that? I would not want to burn any bridges if, if I didn't have to. And I think the older I get, maybe the more I'm, I don't want to say back down on things I don't believe in, but I just don't like have the energy to, you know, fight people on things that I don't care about. You know, whereas when I was younger, maybe I was like, I am right and you are wrong and I'm going to prove it, you know, kind of thing. I probably burned, you know, a few, but nothing major. And it was mostly with people that I probably wouldn't want to work with anyways in the future. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think that that's kind of the key is uh, it is good to, in an ideal world, never burn a bridge, but it's also true that there are some people you may not ever want to work with again. <laughs> it's okay to let things burn to the ground. Though I think that what you said is key that uh, you got to realize whether or not you're making a stand for winning an argument or for something that actually matters. Right. Yeah, totally. What do you think when you're working with a client and they come to you with, a, say, some sort of a vision for what it is that they want to do and say that there's a few opposing visions, like singer has one vision, manager has another, label has another. What matters to you? <laughs> what matters to case? me? Yeah. I guess mostly that, you know, you make a record that you feel everyone can connect with in some form or another if like you're being drawn one to one extreme or the other where it's like you're so you're alienating some people i don't want that per se as far as like the direction 
I would probably, you know, follow their lead or whoever. I'm, I always lean towards like the songwriter and less of the manager and the, and the label, mm-hmm. the musicians themselves. Like it's their thing, me be coming from bands that. So I would lean towards that and just, you know, follow their thing unless I thought their thing was just completely ridiculous. And then at one point, you know, it's like, I'm not a puppet, you know? So when I work on somebody's record, it's like there's, it's, you know, me is coming out into it, whether or not I like it or not. So like, if they're asking me to do something that's crazy, like I can't even do crazy, you know, maybe because that's not like (laughs) achievable by my, you know, with my senses. Do you feel like uh, sometimes the business end is at odds with the songwriting team? Oh yeah. In the past, it's always been, uh, you know, it's rushed. We've had handfuls of records where, you know, you'll get the demos or you'll hear stuff and you'll kind of be like, we need to push this back, you know. Not that they're not ready, like maybe in the sense that they can't play, but the songs just aren't aren't up to snuff or they're just like... They just need that extra little bit of love. Yeah, they need an extra bit of love. And so, you know, you go and you try to explain it to the manager or the label and we've had the response in the past... Make the songs, fix it, do it. You'll do it. You'll figure it out. You know, it's like, whoa, will we? You know, have, <laughs> have you heard the demos? <laughs> kind of thing. But that's usually the response of people who are in the labels or the management. They want to put it out on time. And I don't know if they care how good it is, you know, or they don't trust you when you say it needs to be better. You know, I'm split on this. Sometimes I feel like it's best to not tell them anything. Because they're not going to understand anyways. Right. So that's <laughs> so involving them, uh, telling them it's not ready. And I'm just saying this because of times that I have fucked up things by telling the label that there's a problem. When I think back on those times, I, I wonder, what if I had just not said anything and just let it be? Uh, would they have noticed there was a problem? What if um, we got to the end and at the very end I just said, hey, we just need like five more days. But I didn't say what the problem was or anything like that. Just look, we're not going to get done. We need five more days at the end. Would that have been easier than hitting them up at the beginning and saying, hey, these songs need work? <laughs> yeah. Always ask for ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> you know. I actually do believe in that. Do you believe in that? I do believe in that because I feel like people are afraid of the unknown in a sense. So if you're asking them to do something... They're like, oh, we don't know how that's going to turn out. No, don't exactly. do, don't do that. But if you do it and they see it, they might go, oh, that's cool, or oh, whatever, that doesn't matter, who cares? Like, you know, sorry, you're late. You, you know, kind of thing. It's always easier, I think, at the end than in the beginning. You know, that's kind of like when you're showing an artist an idea. I think it's a lot easier to just show them the idea itself rather than talk about the idea. I hate the whole like talk about thing. I mean, you got to do it with some people, but some people, you they'll just get off track. And it's kind of like, you guys, we've been talking about this thing I wanted you to do for an hour, an hour, a half an hour, whatever it is. It would have taken us 30 seconds to just do it. Like, just shut up and do it. You know, exactly. Or if you had an idea and you recorded it yourself, and you played it to the band, they'd be like, oh, that's cool, what's that? You know, as opposed to, hey, I got an idea, what are you guys doing? And no, 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 we're not going to take anyone's opinion except our own, you know. I think because, I mean, it's coming from a good place. I think they're just trying to be protective of what's important to them. Sure. So they're immediately on defense, shooting shooting intruders at the door, I guess. Some more than others, yeah. Some more than others, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But I also think that on the business end, managers are, you know, they're 
programmed to say no. That's like the initial response. Like right. that's that's their that's their job ahead of anything else is turning things down that the that the artist or the producer doesn't want to <laughs> say no to. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I think that uh presenting them with an idea that's off the beaten path is going to most likely end up with a no cuz first of all how are they supposed to understand the idea that's in your head? Right. So it's weird because uh I think it's best to not say anything but then at the same time it's not good to not be transparent. So it's uh it's it's this weird line you got to walk, I feel like. Yeah. No, you're probably right. And it seems a lot of times, like, the less the label knows about the record, it seems like it goes smoother because the band is, you know, more at ease. And then also you don't have these deadlines. Hey, so-and-so's showing up this week to listen to the record. We got to make rough mixes for him. Okay, let me just go waste, you know, a day and a half of my life making something that plays all these tracks we recorded. So the, when the guy gets here and goes, is this finished? You know, well, of course it's not finished yet. These are rough mixes, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> well, that wouldn't have happened in 2020. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think that's going to be a, a beautiful thing, you know. Yeah, well, maybe not beautiful, but, you know, you just don't get visitors that you don't, you're not, you don't need per se. One of the things that I think is really cool about, how society is going to change. The needless travel is going to be eliminated, though I do think that there's still a place for person-to-person interaction. I think sure. people were traveling too much for dumb reasons. I know just for us, uh, traveling to do Nail the Mix every single month for like five years straight and then not being able to travel at all and f- having to figure out how to do Nail the Mix remotely. Right. I mean, we'll still travel for it when it opens back up, but not as much. Like, it'll have to be a very special occasion, like say that the mixer doing Nail the Mix doesn't know how to work the internet or something. <laughs> <laughs> or it's Andy Wallace or something, you know, like... Or it's Andy Wallace or somebody you want to go hang out with. I want to hang out with all of them. It's yeah. just uh, there's some cases where some people are so technically savvy that we don't need to be there. Right. Like we can send them this kit that we have. They set it up. Awesome. Yeah. And also uh, with the remote setup, I'm talking to them face to face as opposed to talking to the back of their head. <laughs> right. So Being on the couch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, so it actually makes it easier to communicate. But, uh, but yeah, I think that pointless travel is going to be eliminated and people are going to think about when they need to travel. Like I think the, the record label visits, sometimes they were very important because uh, say that, uh, say I remember one or two times that the A&R guy brought a booking agent that was looking into the band, a powerful booking agent, and got them stoked on the band. Right. Which then got them signed to that agency, which then got them great tours. Sure. So, so I've seen that happen. But then I've also seen that this junior A&R guy just wants a plane ticket somewhere yeah. and to hang out in the studio and has no reason to be there. Right. And then you're catering to him for three quarters of a day. You're wasting your time. Wasting a bunch of time. <laughs> yeah, you're wasting your time. So speaking of time, I want to talk about, uh, I guess what was referred to as the golden years, like 2003 through 2013, where uh, you and Bill Stevenson were working on what, like 10 albums a year? Yeah, working 80-hour work weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's insane. What I'm wondering, how did you guys manage your time through that so that, everything got 
done because I know from experience and other producers that sometimes getting booked that much seems like a blessing, but it's a curse because projects bleed into each other. You end up with a backlog. Right. People get pissed off that you're working on two projects at the same time, etc. Yeah. We didn't run into too much of that, honestly. Then I want to know more about your time management. Yeah. So yeah, so there's there's Bill and myself, and then there's a, two other guys that work with us. And so we each sort of split up our workloads and we have like a Google sheet, you know, or a, a schedule. It was like, these things are happening these days in this studio and these things are happening this these days in that studio. So there was always a schedule. And if something didn't jive with the schedule, we would sort of rearrange, you know, what needed to be done before the end of the project. For people working on the same project. Yes, correct. Yeah, we rarely had stuff spill out. The only time that something like that would happen is like if the singer lost his voice and he would have to come back, you know. That's the kind of stuff I mean. Well, we have four studios here and five guys working. So like, you know, if that happens, well, then one of them goes and and does that job and it's not like really messing up with what's going on in the other parts of the building. So you have a workflow buffer. I I would say so. Either that or just been, you know, fortunately blessed that there's not too many singers that have blown out. And then obviously, let's say the the singer blowout thing, after you've made a bunch of records and you're like, well, now the music's done, we're going to do the vocals. It's like, you learn how dumb that is. So you start recording (laughs) the vocal on day one because you have Mm -hmm. a demo or you make a demo, you know, and the singer starts singing the first day and you do it the whole time he's here. So, you you know, if you finish early, you do it again. You know, maybe you're going to get better takes this time. So I think it's just after you make a bunch of records, you got to manage your time and figure out where to spend the time and what to do not to make the mistakes. And when you're working like every day for 10 years in a row, it's like that kind of just worked itself out. There were a lot of inefficiencies I noticed in what was standard for heavy music production for a while Uh that I don't think are so much the case anymore. Like, for instance, what you just said, waiting until the very end to start vocals. That just seemed so stupid. It dawned on me one day. It was like, why do we keep putting ourselves into this situation with the most important part of the record? We're like treating everything else like the most important thing. And then this, the priority, we're treating as an afterthought. And we're not taking into account biology. Not smart. Yeah, no, not smart at all. Yeah. Another (laughs) one that I thought of that blew my mind was, so there's guys that reamp every time, no matter what, Uh right? Every time. Like they never use the original tone, which is fine. They get great tones. So I'm not knocking their abilities. But if they know that 100% of the time they're going to reamp Without question, then why did they spend a week dialing in the original <laughs> tracking tone? Yeah, yeah, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. I know, though, I think that's more common in the, like, the metal world or the like, super yes. heavy rock world. When I would make a record, I would spend forever, you know, days getting a guitar tone. And then use it. And use it and be completely satisfied. And then I, you know, I remember, I think the first time I did it, we were recording an As I Lay Dying record, which is, you know, definitely on the metal end of the spectrum for what we normally do. And uh, 
Phil was kind of like, why are you spending all this time getting these guitar sounds? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's what you paid me for. You know, I'm trying to get you like an amazing guitar sound. Well, we're going to reamp. And it's like, wait, what? What the fuck for? <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a part of the process for a lot of people. Not everybody does it though. There's some metal producers that stick to the original tone. But the thing is, the ones I'm talking about who get an original tone, really work on it, and then reamp anyways, their original tone is awesome already. Yeah. So they spent a long time crafting this thing, knowing that they're going to throw it away. Doesn't make any sense. That makes zero sense. That would be very frustrating if that happened to me too much. Or knowing knowing you're going to replace the kick drum. So why are you spending three days getting the best kick drum sound ever if you're not going to use it. That, or there's also like on the performance too, you know, some people get up, oh, your first double was a little bit light. You need to make it more consistent, yada, yada. It's like, no, you don't. You don't even need to play the damn thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So speaking of inefficiencies, you corrected the thing with the vocals. Uh, You just figured out that this is dumb. We need to be starting at the beginning. Are there any other, other things like that that you just realized in, after doing it for a few years, we should be doing it in this order of operations. Right. I mean, I could tell you the order that we do it now. Sure. Essentially, we'll start pre-production, and Bill usually does pre-production in, in our, our second B studio. So the band's here, and they're doing all that. And while they're doing that, if let's just say it's a couple days long or something, I'll be in the other room getting like you know the drum sound or maybe even setting the guitars up at the same time while there's no band and getting that all dialed in. So as soon as they're ready to go, done pre-production, they may even spill the pre-production out further. I'll just take the drummer, you know, when he's not needed because he's the drummer and just start recording drums. And as soon as I'm done with the first track recording drums, it goes to another guy and he starts editing. As soon as that's done, pre-production is probably over by then, you know, a day or two in. Start doing the bass in a second room. So we're doing drums in, in A and bass in B and kind of doing this big circle until the drums are finished. And as soon as the drums are finished, I'll start tracking guitar while they're doing bass and vocals in the other room. And as soon as I'm done with all the guitar, maybe like, let's say half of the album is completed. I'll start mixing while other guys are finishing the other stuff in other parts of the building. So it's like, there's never any downtime per se And what would normally take like one guy two to three months would take us three weeks. So I think that's how we ended up just getting, you know, tons of records back to back because we could get it done so much quicker. It didn't necessarily cost less because there's more manpower, but I think time is oftentimes worth more than money. So people appreciated that we could get a good record done in three weeks. If you can make it sound as great, in three weeks, as it would take somebody awesome three months. Oh, yeah. That's worth paying more for. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, essentially, that's how we do it, and it worked out pretty well. <laughs> that means that you guys have to have some really good communication. Yeah, very true. How long has everyone there been working together? I mean, I know you and Bill go back forever. Yeah, yeah. We started the studio in 94. So it's, you know, it's almost been 27 years that we've been up and running. It's a long time to be partnered with somebody in this industry. (laughs) You're very true. It's very, yeah, it is. So, but the other guys, so we have another guy named Andrew Berlin and he started working with us in 2000. 
And then sort of an, our newest main engineer, Chris Beeble, started, I think it was in 2010 or 11. Quote, unquote, newest. So he's already been there a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a yeah. We have a newer guy than that, but he's not like a main engineer. He's like a he's a boy genius who he built studios for us and fixes gear and figures out what needs to be done and does it. He's a all purpose guy. Mm-hmm. So there's five of us here, and we all know each other pretty well. So <laughs> yeah, it's easy to communicate. I mean, or just to trust. You know, I don't like if you're all working together and you admire each other's work. There's no need to to micromanage everything as far as like, you know, the communication. It's like, and just let them do their thing. And then when you get it, you go with it unless something's kind of, whoa, what happened here? Why did you do this? You know, and then you might ask them, but sometimes you just trust their vision of what they're doing instead of trying to get your fingers in it all, you know. I think that trust is uh, one of the most important things that a producer can have, both with the clients they work with and with whoever they partner with or whoever they're working for. I feel like a lot of the horror stories you hear about producers saying the band didn't listen or things like that. Uh They were a nightmare. Yeah, there are shitty bands. There are shitty clients. Yes, that does happen. Yeah. But I do feel like a lot of the time, if you read between the lines of the horror story, what I hear is the client didn't trust me and that's why they weren't listening. I don't want to admit that. Right. I would totally believe that. Like, I think we're fortunate in that at least when we started, you know, Bill was in Black Flag and The Descendants. So all like the kind of credibility. Yeah. All the punk bands that we've worked with, they're just coming there, you know, with open arms. Like, and it's already like, maybe we've toured with a bunch of them in whatever bands we were in at the time. Like, and so we're boys. It's not so much a like, the producer and the band it's like you know band members doing other band member stuff so i feel like you get we got more credibility or just leeway people didn't have a big as a like a bone to pick i guess or to prove that hey i wrote this song and this it's you guys can't do this or that you know so we got lucky like that and maybe like as we went on and started branching out beyond just straight up punk rock if the band was too big or we hadn't known them that well that's i think when you start to run into that the trust thing, we're like, well, our manager sent us here. Like, who are you guys? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. But that didn't happen too often. When it does happen or when it has happened, what's your approach for dealing with it? Oh, geez. Try to talk them into like that you're, I mean, this sounds bad, like that you're right. You know, somehow prove to them like that you think that your your experience or your idea may be the right one to go. And then if they don't believe it, then show it to them somehow like we were talking about earlier with ideas or whatnot um i mean occasionally you just have to let it go be like oh you don't want to re-record your tracks because that you know this this and this okay well i guess i'm just going to pitch correct them and chop them up and move them and fix them or have somebody else replay them what do you think about that you know like you don't want to be a total dick and like but sometimes you have to (laughs) well i think sometimes you have to established boundaries and standards. Sure. I mean, that is what they're paying you for. I have encountered situations on tour where a band will be talking shit about a producer. Sometimes they'll talk shit about a tyrant, but more often than not, I hear them talking shit about producers that were too lenient. They're too lenient and just, they like didn't bring enough out of them and they let too much 
go, which it's interesting because you think that they would complain about the other way, right? I mean, everyone's different, but I think that overall they're they're expecting you to bring the best out of them regardless of if they argue in the moment sure. or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing when and how to hold your ground, very, very important skill. It's it's weird because like in the moment, it might be uncomfortable, but uh, we all know that people are going to forget that moment by that night. Oh, yeah. No, I, I have a band, which I won't say their name, but I remember I was mixing it and the singer was really upset that I was using too much, too many triggers on the kick drum. And the drummer kind of, he needed that. He, 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 he needed some help. So yeah. I was trying to explain it to him and he had his own ethos, you know, about what was going on. And I was getting worked up and he's getting worked up and Bill takes me out of the studio, you know, and he's like, look, dude, this is going to be the best sounding thing this band has ever done. Do not worry about any of this, you know? And I was like, oh, Okay, cool. You know, because I'm thinking the band's going to leave, and you know, because they, I'm not doing what they want me to do, but I'm making the best record for them that they've had. And so I had to work around, you know, the, the trigger thing with the variety of different engineering things to make it work. But I stood my ground in that sense, you know, which for the course of the record, you know, this is going to make the record better. And I can't let you deter me from that, you know, but Sometimes you can't just straight up go, look, look, dude, you're wrong. I mean, you want to, but you may have to dance around it until they see your way or you just deliver it the way that they want it. Yeah, well, I think part of the art of being a good producer, engineer is in conflict resolution. Yeah, totally. Yeah, in conflict management, conflict resolution. I think that's part of that's part of it. It's not just the audio. It's knowing how to, how to manage these conflicts crazy personalities. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally true. Totally true. And, and I mean, there's like two, two aspects of the album, you know, it's like what the, what the public hears, they have no zero idea how you got to where you got. They only care if it moves them, if they like it, if it sounds kick-ass. And then there's the band. You'd think that that ultimately having the best record would be the, you know, that's what they would want. But sometimes... I mean, you have to make it like fun. You have to make it an enjoyable experience in a way for them to be like, want to come back. Even if you, even if you created the best record ever, you know, if they didn't have a good time doing it, they might not come back. So you have to balance those two things out. Yeah, I, I've heard some very big bands uh, who went to a very successful producer that they made their biggest record ever with. And they didn't go back because it was such a psychologically traumatic thing (laughs) to work with them. Like he would pit them against each other, like always causing dramas, like make gaslighting them the whole time, just making them, causing them to almost break up basically. Um, Wow. And what they did with him though did come out. Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. They just won't go back. And I've heard about this scenario a few different times with a few different bands and, you know, some awesome producer. Right. And uh, part of me wonders, is that because bands now, now meaning now in the past 10, 15 years, don't have tolerance anymore for like the old school music industry tyrant? Or has it always been that way? And we're just hearing about it because we hear about more things now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, well, like, let's say the old school music tyrant, you know, back when I 
when I first started, there was at least 10 times as much money in in uh, making a record than there is now. Um, yes. Some, you know, there was more writing on it. So maybe those guys are like... Needed a tyrant. They yeah. needed a tyrant. There's more writing on it. You know, they didn't want to like have their money wasted or they can't have a failed product or, you know, that kind of thing. Now it's like... It's still, people still want to put out a good record, but if you're only paying like, I don't know, five or 10 grand for a record, which seems like nothing, it's kind of like, well, just let us do our thing. You know, if you cared more, you'd probably give us more money to do it. But Yeah, I, I remember I had a manager at one point in time uh, and we were talking about points on like records that had like $7,000 budgets. And we were like, we are not going to sweat this label <laughs> for what's going to maybe bring in $50. Yeah, $2.34. Pick and choose your battles. Yeah. This is not one of them. It's just not worth it. To be fair, the the records I'm talking about definitely are more than five or $10,000. Sure. But they're still not like a million dollars. Right. Or something. They're not even a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, the whole the tyrant thing is interesting as well because I f- sort of feel like they're putting their stamp on the album in a way and or they have like a very very similar style of of each record sounds similar and they have to be a tyrant in order to always get their way to make sure it ends up sounding, you know, that way. Uh, whereas like some other guys who have more like a, I don't know, they say, you know, I don't want to put my stamp on it. I want the band to shine through. Maybe they're definitely more open to doing different shit, you know, not being like the head of the, the head of the, the pack, you know, the tyrant guy. Well, you don't hear about George Martin having been a tyrant. No. For instance, and uh, he he's known for having been open to doing whatever. Right. And also, I mean, at a certain point, like, I know that there's tons of people out there that are way better at, like, you know, playing the guitar or anything, writing songs, knowing about music than I am. You know, I feel like I'm good at a whole bunch of stuff, but you have to realize when somebody's better than you are, they know more, take their opinion, you know? Like, it's only going to make the record better. I think that's a tough pill for some people to swallow, but it's very freeing once you become cool with it. Right. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're not scared, oh, these people are going to find out that I'm a fraud and they paid me and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, just accept what you're good at and, you know, try to get the best result in the end, however you do that. Yeah, I think uh, that people don't expect other people to be perfect at anything. I think that what bothers people more than someone not being amazing at something is them pretending like they're amazing at something they're not. <laughs> yeah. So like if you don't know how to do something or there's somebody better and you just say it and uh, you account for that, people working with you will give you that leeway generally. Like for instance, uh, I know how to tune drums, but I'm not what I would say an expert. So there's a drum tech that I always hire and uh, I have no problem saying this guy is 800 times better than I will ever be at this. We, right. should just, we should just get him. You don't want me doing this. Trust me, you don't want me doing this. <laughs> like, I can get us out of a bad situation, but I'm not going to be able to make it as amazing as we all want it to be. Right. And I've never had anybody walk out because of that, that once we got that drum tech in and me and him worked together, 
they were stoked by how good it sounded. Right. You have to be upfront about the stuff that you're not great at. Sure, yeah. Or like, let's say there's guys like Rick Rubin. It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, he hires the best people. You know, like, like that's the He's producing job is, that. is hiring everyone that's the best and have them do the job. You know, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But <laughs> it's interesting. One of, the, one of the bands that I'm thinking of, well, I didn't talk to them personally about this. I read about this in Guitar World or something. Was Slipknot t- was talking shit about working with Rick Rubin, right? And he uh, had just produced their most successful record ever, and they said that they would never work with him again. And we're just talking shit. And then like it became their biggest record ever with like the most singles, and it just I don't rem- know how many millions of copies it sold, right? Lots. And I remember a few years later they said that they took for granted how good they had it with him. They just didn't understand his method of right. going about things. Like it did, didn't make sense to them. Yeah. They had an expectation of what his job should be. Yes. And, and he didn't meet their expectation, but he probably superseded it by, you know, doing stuff that they don't even think about. And that's how they ended up with that great record. You know, it's him, him putting him in the, in the spot to do what they needed to do. Which is a very rare skill. Yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't such a rare skill, it's interesting because people people talk down on that style of production, the uh, executive producer style. But if that was so easy, more people would be really good at it. Yeah, and would have track records like him, but they don't, and there aren't that many people who are that good at it. It's actually really hard. Yeah, I've never worked with him, but it's, he's kind of fascinated me, you know, because he's not a musician and he's not an engineer and he's not a producer in the traditional sense, you know? It's like an executive producer. Yeah, I was like, well, he, I guess he could be like, you know, the head of Amazon or some, some like company, not music per se, you know, but he's taken his, his leadership role through something that he loved. It's kind of like, wow, it's, it's just a different style of uh, producer than you're used to, you know? But you know, the engineers that he hires are... They're the best. Without fail, yeah. They're unbelievable. Yeah, like Andy Wallace. He was Andy Wallace, you know, Brennan O'Brien, those guys, those, they were like working for him, you know? When I was a kid, you'd look on the record and you'd be like, oh, you know, produced by Rick Rubin. Oh, that's cool. Oh, Andy Wallace, who's that? You know, and then five years later, it's like, Andy Wallace, he's the king of the world. You know? <laughs> but he started out as Rick's like engineer. It's amazing... Having a not just an eye for talent, but knowing who to pair with uh, with the right artists. That that's I mean that's team building, right? Uh, that's like customized team building per project, which means that he has to know everybody and understand what their skill sets are and what the boundaries of the skill sets are, and then also understand what the vision for the record is, and then know exactly which personality types are going to work together <laughs> right? and That's just crazy. Yeah. It's, it's high level. That is high level, high level management. Yeah. I just think a lot of people don't understand it because of what you said, they have an expectation. They have an idea in their head of what the job description should is. be. Right. Yeah. Should be. I've always thought the job description is present a record that's as good as possible. I mean, that should be the description is to get, yeah, to get the record to be as good as possible. And then, you know, for the budget that you were paid for and in, in yep. the time that, that somebody wanted it and however you get it done, as long as you meet those three criteria, then you've done your job. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy, URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration 
and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Do you ever feel like uh, there's anything about your workflow that's uh, non-conventional, that doesn't fit what client's job description would be? Oh, geez. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, nothing that pops off the top of my head. I mean, for the last handful of years, I've been working by myself Anyway, so I don't really have a set schedule per se, except for when I want to come and go or kind of thing as long as I get my work done on time. But yeah, I don't, I don't think so. It's a good thing. It is a good thing, you know, yeah. like that I have to think, well, I always get in a fight with this guy because he thinks I should follow. <laughs> and like, no, it's not like that. I, I don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> Just, why you're still in the yeah, game. Yeah, still working. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that you were saying about having the multiple people, though, uh, I have seen bands have an issue with that. Not always. But I've seen them have an issue with that in certain scenarios. Sounds to me like you guys had good communication with your clients and they knew what they were getting into. Right. But I know of some scenarios where there was like multiple people there and they would go to a producer and then get passed off and they'd get pissed about that because they thought they were going to be working with the producer the whole time. Right. And there's some cases where it wouldn't be a good thing because the producer would just pass them off on some some like some kid yeah or whatever not like some equal who right just happens to not be like the head producer or whatever like there's a big difference between having a partner that's an equal and then just passing it off on an underling cuz you don't want to do the work sure yeah that doesn't really happen here. Doesn't sound like it. No, that doesn't happen here. I mean, maybe there have been instances in the past where like a band member would have been like, oh, I thought I was going to record with with you. And then you might just be like, oh, okay, well, cool. Let's do it. You know, and you and you switch around your schedule somehow to make that work. 
unless it's something that's like, well, you really should work with this other guy on this because that's what he's really good at, you, you know, which is the case. Each one of us sort of have specialties, if you will, after working on the, the record so many times. Like, I record guitars, I record drums, Bill records bass, Bill records vocals, and then sometimes the other guys will take in on the bass job. You know, one of the guys that records bass for us now, he's an amazing bass player. It's like he should record your bass parts, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, like, back to your point, you do get people sometimes that, unless you explain to them up front, like, the schedule and who's working with who, they they get confused. Uh, but you can easily work that out. <laughs> if you know how to communicate. If you know how to communicate. I guess I'm taking that for granted. <laughs> it doesn't sound to me like you guys have many interns, or do you? We do, actually. We have two interns. How does that work? Uh, every six months, we hire... Two interns. So you're seven people? Uh, okay, so there's me and Bill. There's Andrew, Chris, Jonathan. Yeah, two interns. Yeah, seven people. The interns don't come every day, though. They sort of rotate. They trade off. Okay. And what's the what's the criteria for that? Because, I mean, it sounds like you guys already have all the jobs pretty much covered. We do have all the jobs pretty much covered, but the longer, like, the main, the core of us work, like, like let's say Chris and Andrew where if Bill and I were extremely busy, would be our, like, our editors or our, you know, catch-all kind of guys. They have their own projects that start coming, and then they're really busy too. So interns are good where you get, well, the criteria is like, hopefully they know what they're doing. You know, they've gone to like a recording school or they've showed some sort of uh, aptitude for it, you know, playing you what they've done or explain that I have a studio at my house, but I want to learn more, blah, 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 kind of thing. You get somebody who knows what's going on and then you can give them, pro not projects, but pieces of the recording, drum mm -hmm. editing, vocal tuning. That's a little bit more advanced, obviously, but that kind of stuff to prove themselves and and it's pretty much every every person who works here with the exception of Bill started as an intern. I was the original intern. I moved out here in 94 and sat on the couch for like a month, you know, kind of just good decision. Yeah. <laughs> My mom didn't think so at the beginning, but <laughs> so so we're all interns and that's how we've hired people, you know, it's it's kind of like a a real life job interview, if you will. And that's maybe why we've ended up with having a really good staff. It's because if, you know, the person that was interning wasn't any good, well, they didn't get hired. So you're only hiring the best or people that work with you well or personality-wise or all the above. It's like they're making it through a like, a like a filter, basically. Yeah, and it doesn't happen too often. It's like maybe once every five years we'll get somebody new. I feel like uh, recording internships are the great filter, like, uh, like they talk about in... Uh, Evolution, the, uh, <laughs> the thing that prevents a, a type of life from evolving into the next type. I feel like uh, recording internships are are the great filter for uh, for engineers. A job interview is not enough. No, not because at all. Because you're not going to know you're not going to know how the person responds to stress. You don't know how they're going to respond to uh, a high profile client in the room. Uh huh. You don't know how they're going to respond to weird requests at weird hours. They're not going to know any of those really important things. Yeah. When I first started working here, Bill would have me do crazy stuff. I mean, it's not really crazy, but, you know, like, he'd be like, go do my laundry. I need you, I need you to clear off this trash off my porch. Uh, oh, and pick up some pantyhose on the way back. We need to make a pop filter kind of thing. And I'm just like, I never worked at a studio. I'm like... What kind of what is this? What is what is this? why is this guy doing this stuff to me? You know, but it's like you have to know how to do everything. It seems like when you're an engineer, or, or 
figure out where there's problems, analyze them, learn how to fix them without instruction from someone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Only ask questions if you really don't know. Right. Being resourceful is key. I mean, you're there to make somebody else's life easier. So if uh, every time there's a problem, you're asking the boss to solve it for you, you're not making their life easier. Right, right. Yeah, well, he would give me stuff to do, and I would first couple of times I'm like, well, I've never done that before. I, I don't know. And then after a bit, you're like, oh, you never say that ever. You just go, yeah, I'll do that, you know, and you figure, you figure, it, and out. You figure out how to do it. And that's what makes you good is you figured out all these problems, you know, on your own. So you have that skill set. So what element of an internship do you consider it to be appropriate for questions? Where do you think the time and place is for them to get their mentorship or where do you think that comes in? A lot of times for me, that's like when I'm working by myself. I mean, I always have a, a sort of a deadline, you know, but a lot of times it's kind of like, eh, not really, I could get it done within this seven day period or something. And so if they want to come in and watch me mixing or mastering or something, a lot of times I'll show them how I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, unless I'm too busy, in which case I'll be like, yeah, you can sit on the couch and watch, don't talk to me, you know? <laughs> so there's those two things. It's like, it just depends on the time crunch and whatnot. As far as like asking questions, when you're like doing actual work with clients around, like hardly ever, in my opinion, you know, unless yeah. it was like, I don't want them, hey, why are you doing this on that guy's drum set? And you did this on the last guy's drum set. Like, just dude, shut up. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, Write it down and ask later. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So and answer a question, like when qu clients aren't around and you have the time to do it, I've, I've, I'm pretty free with my my knowledge or questions or whatever when people ask me. I think, though, one of the most important things about an internship, though, isn't so much what you get told about how to do things. It's being able to observe how they're done, paying attention. Right. That's, that's where you're going to learn. Because sometimes producers, uh, you notice this with a lot of professional creatives, is uh, some are better than others at this, but they don't always think about what it is that they're doing. They just do it because they've been doing it for so long. They like, they they have an instinct for doing something. And so there's, you know, there might be 20 micro steps to get to a certain outcome that at this point, they don't even think about that stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, they hear or see a problem, they already know the solution. Yeah, it's not a problem. <laughs> right. It's not a problem. Yeah. They, so they, they do whatever they need to do to to create that solution. But that solution, when you break it down, is like 20 different steps that is now um, now just automatic for them. It's hard for them sometimes to break that down and explain it because they're not... Oh, you couldn't explain it to someone. Yeah, that's like when... Like I do... I used to have a mastering software. It was called uh, Soundblade or Sonic Solutions. It was real finicky. It was a pain in the ass. And like, if I had to send something out and I would call up, you know, whoever's working there, hey, can you send this out for me? They're like, okay, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm not in front of the screen. Uh, I think you hit like uh, Command R and that'll open this up. And oh, God, I'm not sitting there. I don't know the button, you know. But if you were, were sitting there, you wouldn't even think about anything. You just go, done. But when you have to think about what you what you mm -hmm. did or how to get there? You're like, oh God, I don't know. I have to do it. You know, you have to you have to do it. You can't explain it. That's why it's better to just observe. I think. 
Yeah. Like actually, because they, when you get the explanation from somebody, unless they are experienced in explaining, like that's part of what they do. Yeah. Um, they might not give you the right explanation. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it's not even what they do. They just think they do that, but they're not. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, we've had some Nail the Mix episodes, not many, a few where even, even with me asking the right questions, the person mixing just did not know how to explain anything. And so I'd be like, so why are you doing that? Because I like it. Because <laughs> it sounds good, man. What do you like yeah. about it? Yeah, exactly. What do you like about it? just sounds good. It sounds and good. And then just like yeah. keep mixing, not saying anything. It's like, so what are you doing now? Just some EQ. I'm mixing. You yeah, know? I'm mixing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like mixing as if as if we're not there, which cool, but... Uh, yeah, right. I mean, the mixes always sound great, but, um, but yeah, not everyone is good at explaining things, but that doesn't mean they've got nothing to teach. Sure. So... Intern's job is to observe. You have to be a better student. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, you're, you're learning from non-professional teachers. Just out of curiosity, where do you see the future of uh, big studios now that there are so many home studios? Right. I think didn't just Capital just close down like two weeks ago? They, they did. But <laughs> okay, so I don't mean that style. I don't mean the mega studios because uh, we already know what the deal is with those. I mean more like the multi-room facilities like the one you guys run. Right. Well, my so that's kind of like a, you have to start back a ways, I guess. Um, 10, 15 years ago, we would make records, the whole thing, completely the whole thing, you know? Yeah. And then it turned into, we're not making a record anymore, we're making an EP. Okay. Now we're not making EPs and now we're making singles. Okay. Now we're only recording the drums with you. We're going to do the rest ourselves and give it back to you to mix. All right. We're going to do it all ourselves and we're going to give it to you to mix. You know, okay. We're going to do it all of ourselves and you're going to master it. So <laughs> it's kind of like my workload per se hasn't lessened that much, but it's just changed shapes, you know, tremendously as people do more and more themselves and budgets start shrinking. But at the end of the day, most people don't know how to make things sound good. So I feel like I will always have a job in, my, in, in, my, in my building, which I'm fortunate to be here for so long. It's very cheap, you know, and we've had opportunities to expand and whatnot. And I think that's part of why we've done so well is we've kept our, our costs low. But back to like the music part of it, like people are always going to need me. Not everyone's going to figure out how to do what I'm doing or do it as well. And nor should they. They should concentrate on, you know, their thing, on making music and whatnot. So if you have the, you know, the skills and like what people need, I don't think you're you're going to go out of business per se. But if you're just like fluff and you were around and that because people were expecting they had to go do that, that might go away. I think you have to have the right... You have to have the right things to offer people to keep in business. And there were a lot of studios like that. Somehow they managed to get gear and stay open, but they never did anything that sounded good. Right. It was weird. And I just think that it's because there were no other options really. So people just went to them. Like you see this in local scenes a lot. There'd be like the popular local place that just sucked. Yeah. Now 
why would a band go to that place when they can just use Superior Drummer or something and it'll sound better than that place? No, you're very, very true. Like, I don't think it's so much about the work, the workplace, the tools that you have. I, I believe it's definitely the guy, you know, the person yep. that is a, that's in charge. Because if you're good, you can be good on almost anything. So the places that are going out of business, they might, they just must not have, you know, the people that are there to, you know, make it all happen. It's just, or they got too much overhead in this place. Or both. Or both. Yeah, I, I think that um, this is why a recording studio is not like a valuable thing to sell, like in terms of selling a business. Right. You're not going to get like a 10x multiple from, uh, you know, from an investment firm or some shit like that. Right. Like that's not going to happen because no matter how much gear you have in it, the value is not in any of that. It's in the person who makes the records. And so they could literally have a laptop and a slate microphone and some headphones and uh, make stuff that's multi-platinum and sounds amazing uh, with $1,000 a month in rent and uh, $3,000 in gear. That's it. Yeah, it's crazy now. It's crazy that you can do that. Gosh, you don't need anything. Really, <laughs> you just need a laptop and skill. Well, you, skills. you know, and, sk- skill. and skill. I mean, other than like, let's say, places like Ocean Way or something, where the, you know they've had a kind of a revolving door of amazing engineers and whatnot. But their actual studios have a sound that you can't really get anywhere else, ex- unless you got the UAD plug-in, of course. But there's places like that that you think wouldn't, hopefully, wouldn't go out of business. You never know. You keep hearing about these places. Question being that uh, you could just uh, do everything on a laptop if you know what you're doing. What role does uh, does gear play for you now? Gear plays like sort of much less of a role for me. I used to buy between like thirty and fifty thousand dollars worth of gear every year, uh, new mics, preamps, compressors, whatever, just toys, you know, to keep myself occupied and hopefully improve my improve my work, if you will. Did it improve your work? I think it may have improved my work. Maybe not so much because of the actual gear, but it made me work in a different way or gave me a different idea kind of thing. And then, so after learning that stuff, like now I found like the select few pieces of gear, which I think, you know, matter and whatever I'm doing. And the rest is just like, oh, I know how to get that sound. Just, I need to do this and... I just feel like I can get to that. I can chase that sound kind of on whatever I whatever I have now. Just if it's in my head the right way. Before in the past, I would have been like, I like I'm not getting the sound. Maybe it's because I don't have like an API preamp or you know. And you're like, no, that's not it. But you have to go through all that experimentation with gear to kind of know that it doesn't matter nearly as much as you think it would. <laughs> Where does it matter? I feel like in mastering, gear matters a lot. The smallest, smallest details matter when you have something that you can't alter as much. Per se, is like when you're recording, you know, you can make the whole thing with 57s and have a great recording. But when you go to master it, if you don't want to completely change it, you got to have, you know, really top-notch stuff and pick your cables and pick your power supplies and pick everything, you know, just to not wreck it. But recording, it's not quite as much, I don't think. Gosh. (laughs) Why do you think people worry about it so much? 
because they don't know. They don't have the experience. You know, I had an intern in here the other day and he goes, goes oh yeah, and he uses Logic and I, I've only ever really used Pro Tools, but he had Logic and Pro Tools and I, he had one other DAW on his laptop and he was running the same program out and he was like, I swear... I swear the logic sounds better than the Pro Tools does. I swear. <laughs> you know, and he's going back and forth. And, I'm, and he goes, I don't know which one I should use, but I think this one's a little bit better. And I'm like, you know what else would sound like, you know, a little better? If, well, if I grab this fader here and I moved it half a dB, like now it sounds better than those other two, doesn't it? Like it's, you don't know what you're focusing on or what to chase when you're inexperienced. Like to know, just, dude, just work with whatever you, have what's what's the most comfortable you know that you can get the job done like if you want it a little brighter like just add a little more treble to it you know like not to be so precious about it i suppose i i think also it's just easier to think my work isn't as good as this person's work i just need to purchase this external item and then this problem's going to be solved not i'm going to need to work for maybe a few more years and <laughs> right. develop myself. It's me. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Realizing that it is you. If your work isn't where it needs to be, it's you. You need to get better. I think that that's tough for a lot of people. It's right. tougher certainly than, I don't have a distressor. That's why my vocals don't sound great. I can save up $1,300. Why not? Sure. And no one can actually say there's anything wrong with a distressor, right? Right. For the most part, everyone agrees that they're awesome. But I don't think that uh, anyone who doesn't know how to record vocals has gotten one and suddenly known how to record vocals. Yep. <laughs> Maybe it's happened. Hey, I man. seriously doubt it. <laughs> I just, how'd you get that vocal? Oh, I just smashed the I distressor, bought a distressor, man. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that one of the reasons that people think that kind of stuff sometimes is because they have heard people who don't know how to explain what they're doing say something like, I just smashed the distressor on it, like 20 dB, a gain reduction, good to go. And uh, they make it sound like that's all it is. Right. Yeah, so a beginner reads that interview with somebody amazing who said something like that, and then they think, oh, okay, cool. I just need to buy a distressor, smash the shit out of the vocal, and we're good. <laughs> and that's it, right? Yeah, that's it. That's all there is to it. Doesn't matter how good the singer is. No, <laughs> that, that, that's it. Just uh, just smash some stuff. <laughs> so how long were you doing this before you started making a living at it? Let's see. So I started in, here in 94. And I think in 2000, when I met my wife, I was making $12,000 a year <laughs> working here. And she goes, you need to ask for a raise. And I was like... Oh, okay. So, you know, I go into Bill. Hey, Bill, my uh, my girlfriend thinks I need to get a raise. Okay, how's 15 an hour sound? Okay, great, you know. And so it was probably probably six or seven years before I started to make, like, an okay thing. And maybe, like, six years after that where I was living comfortably. So, like, let's say 12 years, you know? Like a comfortable adult life? Like a, Yeah, like a regular adult life, you know? I didn't have posters in my living room and whatnot. <laughs> How long were you doing it before you got the internship? I hadn't actually worked in the studio before that. I had a four-track, and then I purchased an eight-track, and I would record the band I was in in the basement. That was kind of my extent of it. Why did uh, Bill give you a shot? 
Why did he give me a shot? Good. Okay, so I lived in Seattle before I moved out here, and my roommate here, here being Denver, right? Or uh, Fort Collins. Yeah, it's like an okay. hour north of Denver. And I was living with all Bill's band at the time, their manager. And so their manager got them uh, a record deal with Interscope, and Bill and the other guy in the band, Stefan, the guitar player, they had recorded a bunch of other people, but they decided they were going to build the studio instead of, you know, spending all the money somewhere else. And so they were going to move to Colorado to do that. And uh, his name was Don Robertson. He was my, the manager. It's like, I'm moving out to Colorado. Don Robertson, who then went to Century Media. Yeah, yeah, the president okay. of Century Media. Yeah, he was my roommate. Interesting. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. So, you know, Don's like, I'm. hey, I'm going out to, uh, moving out to Colorado. You should come with me. You know, and this is, I was out of college for a year. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I paid off all my debt, decided I was going to move out with him and started that way. And I was, I had met Bill a handful of times beforehand because he would come out to Seattle to record bands. And so he stayed at my house. And when, yeah, when they were on tour also, he, they stayed at our place a couple of times. So I had met him prior and I had just got out of college. And so I think Bill was kind of like, maybe saw some potential, you know, like, college graduate, you know, motivation, whatnot, like, you know, have them come out, see what, see what happens, test the waters. Just basically knowing some people and him just kind of already knowing that you're not a weirdo. Yeah, that I'm not a weirdo, you know, that I've got, I've got some stuff going for me, you know. Yeah. So you were, you were vetted. You were vetted. I was vetted. Yes. So even though you didn't have like a real studio experience, I guess your personality was cool enough and you were vetted enough to where he felt comfortable with the idea. Pretty much exactly that, you know. And then I was with Don too when I first showed up and I was helping him mm -hmm. do his, he was a manager back then, do management stuff. And I was just kind of, you know, like the first intern. <laughs> it just goes to show that uh, the social side of this, in some ways more important than the audio side of it. In some ways, not in every way, but in some ways it is. In some ways, for sure. It might get you the job before your audio skills do. Right. I mean, I don't want to say you can always learn how to do the audio because some people clearly cannot. You, you know, No, within reason. Yeah, some people are you know, gifted. But oftentimes, a lot of those people that are gifted... They don't have the personality side of it, you know? They're they're gifted with a shitty personality too. Yeah, exactly, right? So it's like, you got to have one or the other, hopefully both, but you know, like either you're like really good at making records and everybody hates you, but they still go to you because you're really good at making something sound good, or you're a really kick-ass guy and everyone loves to hang out with you. And you but you're still pretty damn good. You're still pretty damn, I mean, you got to still be pretty good and if you're not pretty good you know get people around you that are that are pretty good <laughs> like we said before though people might not go back to you if you're difficult no matter how good you are and i think that in order to be at the level where people overlook your personality you better be making them a shit ton of money yeah pretty much i, w I would agree i would agree that's what makes people tolerate bad behavior in music i think is money. And the moment that that money train stops or isn't there, the threshold for bad behavior is way, way, way lower. Right. I wonder too, you know, thinking about no tolerance for tyrants, like in the old days, I wonder if part of it also is because uh, musicians have evolved. 
since the old days too, in that they're much more on their shit than they used to be. Like they know more about the business. They know a little bit more about recording. They just know more. They're far more educated. They have to be. There's no place for fuck up musicians. I mean, some of them are, but by and large, the stereotype of the fuck up rock star who's like a total space cadet junked out loser (laughs) uh, who doesn't know anything and just has everybody else doing everything for them couldn't like make their way through an airport if you gave them a map or GPS. I think that while there's a there's a minority of those, I don't think that those survive the industry the way they used to because they don't make money for people the way they used to and people don't put up with it. And so the class of artists you have now are, they're just probably smarter people and uh, more aware. They don't put up with as much shit because they don't have to. Yeah, I think also... Like you're saying with, I guess, with the advent of, you know, all the home recording stuff being so easy nowadays, they can do it themselves. You know, like I've had so many bands come in and they played me their demo and I've been like, this is your demo? What do you need me for? You know, kind of thing. Like they're, people are getting a lot better at doing this. (laughs) When that happens, do you feel like you're talking yourself out of a job? I do sometimes. You don't really want to downplay yourself too much because I've seen both sides of the of the spectrum, you know, like where I've witnessed myself or others exuding like so much confidence that you can watch people just believe you. Oh, yeah, this guy, dude, did you hear how he was talking about that? Yeah, he's he's our guy. He's doing it, you know. But at the other time, like maybe you don't need the job as much anymore the longer you've done it or you're confident enough in your in your skill, you know, like I know what I've done in the past. People know what I've done, so like I'm just being honest with you here. You know, take it or leave it kind of thing. I've I've had that happen where uh, I was working on a mix and uh, and it was killing me, and so I asked a friend of mine to just take it over, and they were like, "Why? Sounds fine. You're crazy." Yeah, I was like, "I'll pay you. Shut up." <laughs> they didn't take it. They, they didn't do it. No, they didn't do it. They didn't see the point. Right. I've encountered that a few times, also with bands coming in with something that just sounds so good that like, what's the point? Wait, right. Why don't we release yeah. this? But you know, sometimes they come in with something that sounds good and the point is that uh, there is something missing. No, you're right. I always say that when you when you first hear the demo, maybe it's because like you're a you're like a initial listener, and you're like, "Holy shit, this is good," or you just don't expect it to be that good. And therefore, if it's that good, you're like, "Really, oh wow!" But then you take the record, you work on it, and then when you're finished, and you go back and you play your finished thing to the demo, you're like, "Oh, that demo sucked." You know, I mean, it didn't suck, but you don't really realize how much better it's going to get until you really immerse yourself into it. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I think that maybe talking ourselves out of a job isn't always the best <laughs> you're prob- the best idea. You're probably right. <laughs> I mean, they come, they came to you for a reason, right? Exactly, exactly. So anyways, I think this is a good place to stop the episode. I want to thank you for hanging out, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. I've enjoyed talking to you. Okay then, another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, 
Happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.